Good to see everyone this morning, and welcome. Thank you for your patience, as I said last week, with the seating. We'll talk about that more as we have opportunity here and give you some instructions. But um, thank you for coming today, and I hope that you are here to hear the Word of God and to minister to one another. And speaking of the Word of God, why don't we begin with a word of prayer before we look at the Scriptures. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that it means to us each week. It is a little taste of heaven on earth every time we meet on the Lord's Day, and we thank you for it. ask you, Father, now that you would use your word and your gospel to encourage the hearts of those who already know you and yet sometimes have doubts within them about their worthiness, about whether or not you accept them, because perhaps it's the confusion about the grounds of their salvation, or perhaps they've forgotten. And Father, we pray for anyone who is listening right now, whether they be in this room or down the hall or online, that if they don't know you as their Lord, their Savior, their God in Jesus Christ, I pray that this would be the day that they repent and believe and cast all of their hope upon you and discover, perhaps for the first time, that they are not disappointed in the promises that you have made for them. Father, fulfill all of your promises, all of your gospel promises in them this morning, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen and amen. A moment ago, Randy read for us the narrative of what is called the triumphal entry. This is Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on the very week that he would die. From the time of his birth, he had he had been the long-expected king, the Christ. But even from the earliest days of his life, the idea of Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's king was rejected. It was rejected. And in Israel today, I can tell you, it is still rejected. They still fail to believe what the prophets have said and were fulfilled in Jesus Shortly after his birth, you remember that Herod attempted to kill him. And when he came of age and began teaching, the religious leaders in Jerusalem hated him. His own brothers rejected his claim to be the promised Christ. And, and while it was true that his disciples believed he was the Christ, even their understanding of his purpose and mission in the world was misguided. That's why Jesus kept saying things like, don't tell anyone. He would perform a miracle and he would tell his disciples, don't tell anyone. And you remember the time on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw him transfigured into his glory and he said, don't tell anyone. Why? Because they didn't understand what Messiah was going to be. And yet he was him. He was their king. 
He was the Christ, the anointed one, their king, our king. And so his disciples even were misguided. And to various degrees, everyone was disappointed with Jesus. Everyone was disappointed with Jesus. He never lived up to their ultimate expectations as the promised king. They loved the miracles. Well, not everyone loved the miracles, but his people did. And those who were healed and raised from the dead, they, they loved Jesus' miracles. But they didn't understand what it meant for him to be king. On Palm Sunday, however, all of that appeared to change. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for the great feast, the whole city emptied itself and came running out to Jesus. Word got out that he was coming. And they began shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. By the way, do you know what the word Hosanna means? It means save us, save us which was indicative of what they thought the king would do and be. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. What were they saying? He is king. He is king. He is the Christ. In those few moments, God's chosen people treated him as if, as if he really were their king. But the excitement was short-lived because Jesus had no intention of being the kind of king they wanted him to be. And so the first thing he does is he walks into the temple proper, onto the courtyard. He looks around. He sees the, the bazaar of Annas, the, the, uh, the, the, the selling and the buying and the money changing. And what did he do? Well, he was king. They didn't believe it, but he started acting like king. And with all of his authority, he came in and he turned over those money changer tables and he threw everyone out. I don't even know how he did that. If you ever have an, an opportunity to read about or even see the magnitude of the courtyard there, how could one man chase everyone out, and yet he did. He turned over their tables. He sent their money spilling all over the ground. The Pharisees hated him for this. They plotted together how they might kill him. And with the help of one of his own disciples, Judas, their homicidal plot was set in motion. He would be arrested this very night and crucified the following day. Amazing. Unbeknownst to them, however, the entire narrative of the passion of Christ was playing out exactly as God had planned it from before the creation of the world. While the world was killing Jesus, listen carefully, while the world was killing Jesus, Jesus was loving the world. In that same act whereby they were killing him, he was loving them by laying his life down on behalf of all who would believe. By the atoning death 
On the cross, Jesus would secure the eternal salvation of a multitude of people who could not even be numbered. And we will see that throng in heaven one day, and we will not be able to number them. Some years later, the Apostle John would say this, 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. I want you to hear those words as if you had never heard them before. God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation meaning being the acceptable sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The cross of Christ was the ultimate display of the love of God for sinners. And that divine love proved to be the motive of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the origin of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love of God is the origin of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to take just a couple of minutes to kind of speed through from the beginning of Romans. I just want to remind us, as we're thinking about the love of God, let's think, first of all, about everything, at least the major things that Paul has said to us so far about the gospel. And so here we go. In the gospel, Paul preached, the righteousness required by God is the righteousness that is given by God, by grace alone, through faith alone. For as it is written, the just or the justified shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, in the beginning chapters of Romans, Paul exposes the reality that all humans are sinners by birth and by choice. And that's the problem, right? The gospel solves the problem. What's the problem? We are all sinners by birth and by choice. By nature, we are hardwired, as it were, to resist and reject God. And so, God gave man over to what he wanted. He turned us over to the lust of our flesh. And it didn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, which, by the way, was scandalous to the Jews. And Paul was a Jew, and yet he was the one who said, listen, there is no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is who we are as humans by birth and by choice. All of us are worthy of God's righteous indignation, God's righteous wrath. Furthermore, we learn in God's word that there is a righteousness that we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. We can't achieve it by law-keeping. We can't get it by circumcision. You can't obtain it by baptism or even by church-going. So if you have come this morning or intend to come next week on Easter when everybody shows up to church, we call such people CEOs. Christmas and Easter only, right? And if you've shown up this morning thinking that your coming here today will 
merit you something that would impress God so that when you see him face to face, he will declare you righteous. Forget about it. That's not how it works. There is a righteousness you desperately need, for sure. You don't have it, and you can't earn it. The righteousness we need is the righteousness that comes from God, apart from all human works. It is a righteousness that is received by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3.22. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul calls for a witness to demonstrate that this is nothing new, that this has always been God's means of salvation. And so he, he calls as a witness Abraham. How was Abraham justified? How was he declared righteous in God's sight? Well, he was justified by faith. We read in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed God, and God said that it was accounted to him as righteousness. Or, or accounted, another word for it would be imputed, this man who was unrighteous was declared righteous by his faith. And so it would be for all who would believe. Moreover, that imputed righteousness would last forever. It would carry him all the way to glory. Again, the gospel is exemplified in the Old Testament after he remembered David committed adultery and, and murder in the affair with Bathsheba. And yet David declared, and God wrote it down in his book, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count or impute his sin against him. You say, well, didn't he, he really did those sins, right? He really did what he did with Bathsheba, and he really did kill her husband. I mean, this is the worst of the worst. This is a murderer. And yet, God determined before the creation of the world that he would be glorified in this. That there would be the forgiveness of sin. For all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, and it doesn't matter what you have done, it can all be forgiven, and it all is forgiven in Christ. And so justification in the eyes of God depends upon not your works, not your church going, not your anything. It is all about God. It's all about what God did for you. It is all about God's love for sinners faith in Jesus Christ apart from any meritorious work. And beloved, if you're tracking with me, some of you have got to be thinking, this sounds too good to be true. And yet, it is God's promise. And if you have your Bible, I haven't asked you to open it yet, but go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 4. 
That'll get us close to five where we're going. And I just want you to see one word, and we're not going to dwell on this. God promised, his promise is guaranteed. You see the word there? It is guaranteed to all his offspring, that is, all those who share the faith of Abraham. Now pay attention to that word, guaranteed. Romans 4.16. God has guaranteed the salvation. God has guaranteed justification for all who believe in Jesus as their all-sufficient Savior and Master. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. As you know, the people to whom Paul was writing in Rome believed this gospel. They embraced it. They entered into covenant with Jesus by faith. But Paul was concerned that perhaps some might wonder if the promise, if the guarantee of justification by faith alone would really last. I mean, is it robust enough to get us there? To get us all the way in to the presence of God without judgment. And to be sure, if, if there were those doubts, they no doubt came from the Jews who were convinced that the way that you receive justification is by your righteous deeds. And so Paul set out to put this to rest. How can we be sure that the covenant between God and the sinner who simply believes in Jesus will last? Well, the short answer is it will last. How can we be sure that in the end we will not get what we actually deserve, namely eternal judgment, rejection, and condemnation? How do we know? How do we know? Paul's answer is this you can be sure that God's everlasting covenant with you is made of, the, of a fabric that is infinitely stronger than any, any covenant that has ever been made. It is stronger and more secure than any human covenant can ever, can ever be established. Even the best, even the purest of covenant commitments between two people can decay and, and be torn apart, as is evidenced by the current divorce rate in our country. When two people stand at the altar and they commit to love one another till death parts them, separates them, how often is that covenant broken? And you know what? That, that's not a new thing. Jesus talked about that. The Old Testament prophets talked about that. Paul talked about that. We all understand that, that while all covenants are supposed to last forever, human covenants tend to fall apart, or they often fall apart. But not the covenant that Jesus makes with you. It will never fall apart. You know why? Because it never started with you to begin with. 
It is not grounded in you. It is not accomplished by you. It is not sustained by you. It is by faith so that it must be by grace and grace alone so that the glory goes to God alone. God's covenant promise is as secure as the nature of God himself. How can we be sure? Well, we can be sure because the origin of our justification is not what we do or what we have done or what we intend to be someday, but rather it is grounded in or its origin is the infinite, unfettered, sovereign love of God. It is an infinite, sovereign love of God that he initiated before he said these words, let there be light. By the time he said that, he had already established his covenant. We might think of it like this. The love of God moved the hand of God to send the Son of God to reconcile the enemies of God to himself for his own glory and for our eternal joy in his glory. This is divine love. This is amazing love. This is God's covenant promise. And we have learned something about that love of God in Romans chapter 5. The love that undergirds God's saving promise. Specifically, we've learned about the nature of God's love, how it is eternal. We've learned about the timing of God's love, that Jesus came and paid the price for us at exactly the right moment. It is sovereignly orchestrated. And thirdly, we learned about the manner of God's love. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, his only one. And that's where we left off last time. If you're wondering if we're ever going to get to the notes. <laughs> this morning, I want to talk to you about the recipients of God's love. This is shocking. This is astounding. If you have any doubt or if I have, if I have in my stuttering not communicated well, wait until you read this. It can't get any clearer. Let's talk about the recipients of God's love. I, I intend to finish this section of Romans 5 today. But before we, we look at it, let me just once again read the text. I'm not going to ask you to stand. should have done that 20 minutes ago. But here we go. Just listen to this. You know, whatever you need to do to not be distracted from what I'm about to read, do that. And anything you're doing right now or thinking about that might distract you from understanding what I'm about to read, stop it. Here we go. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us because, here's why, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Paul's about to say to sinners like you and me is one of the most wonderful and encouraging words we will hear in this life. I know you love Romans 8. We call it the great eight. Perhaps the rival for greatness of a text in my mind has become this text in the book of Romans. It is absolutely amazing. What Paul's about to say to sinners like you and me is one of the most encouraging things you could ever hear, that anyone could ever hear. It is all about God's love. Its substance, its timing, its manner, etc. Something inside my heart is, you know, when I read this, I'm compelled to ask, who is this for? Who is this for? It's like, it's like, Someone comes and they set up on the stage and they say, we're bringing in the most valuable things in the world and we're going to give it to someone. And we pile it up. It comes in in piles and crates and a mountain of everything valuable. And it's already been said that somebody is going to receive this. Maybe it's by a raffle or maybe it's just by appointment or whatever. But everybody is on the edge of their seat. Who's going to get it? Who's going to get it? Who's going to get it? That's where you should be right now. Lord, who is going to get this? Who are the recipients of this love? Who are the recipients of God's awesome, eternal love? Is it the rich? The educated? 
the noble, the brilliant, the self-sacrificing, the religious elite of our time, those who have believed enough, those who have repented enough, those who were good enough, no, none of them. Rather, there are actually four kinds of people that God intends to pour out this treasure of his eternal love upon. It's not just one kind of person. It is four. And let me just tell you who they are. Are you ready for this? The weak, the ungodly, the sinners, and the enemies of God. You say, Pastor, what version are you reading? That can't possibly be. You're talking about the people who hate God? Well, maybe the weak, maybe that's an exception, maybe not. The ungodly, really? Sinners, enemies of God, they're the ones whom God has designated will be the recipients of his eternal love? Yes. Precisely. Let me show this to you in the text, verse 6. This is where he refers to them as the weak. Paul says, for while we were still weak. Now, this is an interesting word. The word for weak, it means powerless, absolutely powerless. This speaks of the inability of the sinner to do anything, to do anything for himself with regard to salvation, his justification, his reconciliation with God. In one sense, it's, just three different ways of saying the same thing. You have absolutely nothing that you can contribute. You're weak. You're powerless. There's nothing you can do. Secondly, the ungodly. Again, verse 6, Paul writes, At just the right time, Christ died for the what? ungodly. Ungodly refers to those who are most unlike God. I mean, who do you invite over for dinner? People, probably people who are like you. Who do you like to hang out with? People who like the things that you like, then do the things that you like to do, that you're kind of like them. God, however, sets his love on those who are most unlike him. The ungodly refers to those who are most unlike God, the, the godless. It, it's, it's, by the way, it's, it's, it's not that they aren't religious. Most of them are religious. It's just that they worship things that are not God. They live for money, Sex, power, food, pleasure. They live for good grades and a great reputation, influence, success. And then there's this next category, sinners. Well, that's the term that we normally use, right? 
Paul writes in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The term sinners here is a word for those who break God's law. They hate God's authority over their lives. They resent his lordship. They prefer unrighteousness over virtue and holiness. These are the anti-God people. Sinners. And finally, the fourth category of people upon whom God intends to pour out his eternal love are, verse 10, enemies. Paul writes, notice here, for while we were enemies... While we were enemies. Now, I want, you to, I want, you, I want that little phrase to, to sink in. While you were still, not after. While you were still enemies. While you were still enemies. You were reconciled to God. Here he is speaking of those like Paul himself, who hated God, despised his gospel, blasphemed his son, and killed his followers. What kind of promise is this? It seems wrong. This is the best part of the focus that Paul has for us here. The best part and the, and the focus of this whole, whole passage is here. And so let's just back up a little bit here and, and read this section. Romans 5, beginning with verse 6. Here is Paul again. Paul is talking about the love of God. For while we were still weak, still powerless, not after we gained power, but while we were still unable to do anything for ourselves. By the way, this reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which means blessed are those who view themselves as spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. Paul's just saying the same thing. For while we were still powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would maybe even dare to die. But God, listen to these words, but God shows, and here's a better word, I think, I think a better translation, at least Martin Lloyd-Jones thinks so, That God shows, or here's the word, proves his love. God proves his love, his scandalous love, his foolish love, his, his uh, divine love, his eternal love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ gave himself up for us. Beloved, this is the whole point of the passage. This is the amazing love of God. 
God is not impressed by the impressive. He's not wowed by the rich. He's not seduced somehow by the religious. He chooses those who are against him, and because they are against him, they have no hope. They have no hope. And the whole point of the first four chapters of Romans is that we were all in that position. This is just four different descriptions of the same person, namely me and you. So Paul's saying, listen, it's, it's almost conceivable that someone would maybe die for a good or a righteous man. But here's the thing. I'm not that man. It's conceivable that someone might die for a good man, but you're not that man. You say, well... Why do you say that? I mean, everyone in society says, no matter what I do, I'm good. Well, I hate to tell you this, but that's not what God says. Who are we that the long-awaited Christ would die for us? Paul's already told us who we are in the eyes of God. Romans 3, 10 through 12, I'll just read a part of it. As it is written, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one, listen to this one, all you churchgoers out there. No one seeks for God. You say, well, I am. No, you're not. You're seeking something that you think you can get from religion no one seeks for God, not the true God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not my word. This is God's word. And here is Paul quoting. Paul's not just saying these things like for the first time. He's quoting from the Old Testament. This has always been God's perspective. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Oh, my friend, do you see yourself in one of these four categories? Are you powerless and helpless, having no ability to merit anything by your own efforts in order to commend yourself to God? Are you powerless? Are you ungodly? Some of you are probably thinking right now, Pastor, if you knew what I've done and, and what I continue to do, are you a sinner? Do you live by breaking God's law? I remember when I was young, we just did everything we could to break every law we could. And certainly God's law. Are you a sinner? Do you sit in church this very morning as an enemy of God? I know your first impulse is to say no. And yet God says yes. Salvation begins 
by admitting that. That you are helpless, sinful. You've been living as the enemy of God. Do you see yourself in these descriptions? Powerless, ungodly, sinner, enemy? If so, if so, if so, then the gospel is for you. And this brings us to the final feature of the love of God. And that is the security of God's love. Look again in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And you should be thinking right now, as I was when I read this, what in the world does that mean? I mean, I understand the part about his death. There had to be, there had to be a dying because the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. And it could only be one person. It could only be the person who is qualified to represent man before God and, and represent God before men, who could bear all of the sins of all who would believe. What does Paul mean when he speaks of the saving power of Jesus' life? Well, he's speaking about the powerful thing that happened immediately after Jesus died immediately after his crucifixion, immediately after the three days in the tomb. You know what he's referring to? Resurrection. Isn't it providential that we landed on that today? Because next week, next week is Easter. I have that right, right? <laughs> resurrection. And not only resurrection, but the ascension, we don't, we don't talk much about the ascension, but listen, if Jesus only rose from the dead and lived on earth, we'd still have a problem because we need a ruling, reigning Savior. As all of God's promises come to us now through Jesus Christ who reigns. But he ascended back to the, the Father's throne. The Father's throne upon which Jesus now sits as the one whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given forever. So that before, before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And remember the last phrase, to the glory of of God the Father. Now listen to me. The glory of God the Father is at the end because the glory of God the Father was at the beginning. God the Father would be glorified in the glorification of His Son by His Son saving a host of people who were His sinners and His enemies. Why would He do that? For the glory of the Father. You see, Ultimately, it's not about you, 
That's why it's so secure. That's why it's secure. It didn't start with you. That's why it's secure. It's all about Christ. It's the covenant, not so much that he made with you, although he did that, but it was first of all about the covenant that God the Father and God the Son made with one another before the creation of the world. Have you ever thought about that? I think many of you have because you've been here for a long time. Can we just review it for a second? The book of Hebrews refers to it as the eternal covenant. And it went something like this. God the Father says to the Son, the Spirit along with him, nothing has been created. Son, I want to do something. I want to show you how much I love you. And I want to glorify your name. So, I'm going to send you to a people who we will create. They will turn their backs on you. They will hate you. They will despise you. And you will save them. You will save them by your own precious blood. You will become a man and die in their place so that my holy wrath is satisfied. And by that, you will be glorified. And that righteousness that we talked about at the beginning, the righteousness we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn, have you ever thought about why Jesus lived for 33 years? I mean, why didn't, he, why didn't God the Father say, listen, here's what we're going to do. I need you to go down on Thursday and make everybody really mad. They're going to arrest you. They can kill you. And I'll have you home by Sunday. Why 33 years on this earth? Answer, Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. He lived a perfect life that could be imputed to our account so that our sins really could be forgiven. That righteousness could be imputed to us. And that was God's plan. Here's how Paul says it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. What this means is God treated Jesus as if he had lived my wicked, rebellious, sinful life of the enemy of God. Why would he do that? So that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfectly righteous life. It's the great exchange. All your sin, all your rebellion, traded for all of his righteousness and all of his magnificent love. But you have to humble yourself. You have to say, God, I get it. I'm the sinner. I'm the enemy. I am the wretch. I have nothing to offer you. I am the powerless. 
I have nothing to give you. There's no way I can recommend myself. All I can say is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know what they call that? You know what the Bible calls that? Faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in, I hope God's going to be kind to me at the end. He'll overlook everything. No, 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 no. It's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You want to know for certain that your justification is eternally secure? You want confidence that Jesus will never go back on the covenant he made with you? Beloved, meditate on the love of God for sinners. Now, look back at verse 5 for a minute. Verse 5 is that verse last week, that pesky little verse that I couldn't find <laughs> while I was standing up here. Some of you are, are, um, had stage fright. It's in moments like that that I think it's totally justified. In verse 5, Paul tells us that the reason that you will never be disappointed with Jesus' promise is because the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see that? In other words, the Spirit's ministry, we've talked about God the Father and God the Son, but the Spirit's ministry to those who are in covenant with Jesus is to remind you, to remind us of his love. What has his love achieved for us? We have peace with God. This, this goes back to verse 1. Here's what, here's what Jesus accomplished for us. Number 1, we have peace with God. Verse 2, we have obtained access to God by grace. Number 3, we experience joy in our suffering. And by the way, if you don't know what that's about, if you're a Christian, you probably will. It's indescribable how suffering can produce the most intense joy in God that you have ever known. And it is the work of the Spirit. We experience joy in our sufferings, and that joyful suffering produces endurance and character and eternal hope, verse 5. And that, and that love will never disappoint us. We will never find ourselves ashamed for believing it. Why? Because he will never end the relationship. He has promised. And then, verses 6 through 11, the proof of it is witnessed by the fact that we were powerless, we were ungodly, sinful enemies of God. Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to improve yourself or to change in some way or to get more determined or to be good enough. No, he sought us out from the beginning. He found us when we were at our worst. He declared his love for us and then he died in our place so that we could be reconciled to God forever. You see, my friend, the love of God moved the hand of God to send the Son of God to rescue the enemies of God for 
for his great glory and for your great joy. So rejoice in this. Glory in this. Meditate on this. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And beloved, I think this is what the Apostle John was thinking of when he wrote, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. The Apostle John was amazed by it. And we should be as well. Puritan pastor John Owen once wrote, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on God the Father. After all of this, the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. Perhaps the best way to end this series on the love of God is simply to read the passage that speaks probably most clearly, and it is in the great eight. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword that would be war? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us through him who loved us. He could have said, through him who saved us. But he wanted to, us to understand the motive. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, because of his great love for you in Christ, you who are justified are absolutely and eternally secure. Father, this text is almost too wonderful for me. As David says, it is too high. I cannot attain it. And yet it's not about us understanding every detail, having all of our questions answered. Rather, it is about believing what we have heard. I pray, Father, that your word right now is creating faith in some who are right now hearing. Some who are hearing it for the first time. Some who have heard it a thousand times and have never responded. Oh, Father, pray, I pray, that today would be their day 
And they find themselves reconciled to God by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone. And all of it for the glory of the Father alone. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.